0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of Brexit Ready, hosted by me, Penny Haslam. The UK has, of course, left the EU now and the transition period has ended, meaning new rules are in place for all businesses based in the UK. With Covid still the most pressing issue for many businesses, devoting time and resource to fully understanding the changes across all areas can be a challenge. This mini-series for Hertfordshire Growth Hub powered by Hertfordshire Local Enterprise Partnership, will help businesses to navigate their way through the complexities of the transition process. In each of the episodes, we'll feature an SME business owner with an expert or two, who hopefully will be able to shed light on these areas. And today we're talking about supply chain. So how different does supply chain look since Brexit? How is it affecting small businesses? And what can we do to tackle the issues it presents? To discuss these large and wide-ranging questions, I'm joined by Olly Bridge, who is Head of Operational Consulting at Grant Thornton, Isabel Sheldon, OBE, Chief Strategy Officer at British Vault and member of the Board of Trustees at the Faraday Institution, and Sam Walker, who's the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer of Lancering. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 <laughs> Nicely done. Very, very polite there. First of all, let's hear a little bit about you. Ollie, what's your experience been with supply chain, supply chain issues since Brexit? How, how do you help people?
1: So we help people um, with VAT, customs, but also supply chain as as well, just helping people get things moving with some of the more complicated questions. Uh, We're seeing lots of stuff at the moment, as you can imagine, and I'm sure we'll talk about them as we go through, but mostly around compliance and optimization. So helping people get compliant and then helping people to optimise as well.
0: And Isabel, the same?
2: So British Vault is a manufacturing facility, a manufacturing company for the battery cells that go into electric vehicles. Primarily at the moment, it's lithium ion uh, battery cells, but that may change into newer technologies as we go through the ramp up. And this is a 30 gigawatt hour facility, which is enough cells approximately to build sort of 450,000 vehicles in support of not only the UK uh, automotive industry, but also looking at exporting into the European Union. And then we're looking at setting up facilities around the world um, and looking at places like Canada and maybe Turkey as well, uh, aiming to get to 150 to 200 gigawatt hours worth of manufacturing capacity. By, by by 2030. And you know, the supply chain element is really interesting because we're in this, you know, starting to, to, to build the facility later this year and get those production plans in place. The, the supply chain feeding into the UK doesn't really exist in any meaningful form at the moment. So we're emerging into this post-Brexit world setting up a supply chain that fits the rules and obligations that are in place now rather than having a legacy system that we've had to change and adapt. And things like the rules of origin are really important for us because that trade and cooperation agreement with the European Union it means they have a sliding scale of max non-originating material that we have to take into consideration. And this means that we've been able to set up our supply chain from the start to be rules of origin compliance so that our customers can export their vehicles into the European Union. So we've seen this, this post-Brexit period as an ideal opportunity to set it up and make sure our business is fit for purpose for the middle of this decade and beyond.
0: And Sam, just explain what landsearing is and how has its supply chain been affected by the exit from the EU? It's
3: interesting because we're probably one of them, I would say, you know, uh, probably unlike battery technology, we're probably a, a simpler supply chain setup. However, it doesn't mean that um, it's necessarily been straightforward getting things set up. We spent an awful lot of time... Since the Brexit vote, ensuring that our trade and 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 goods coming across the border are as uh, least affected as possible. Uh, however, there's still been one or two things we've we've had to uh, jump jump through hoops to get right. Um, I think probably one of the biggest challenges for us as a business is working with other small businesses across Europe and um, just ensuring that they understand what is going on and what we require from them with regards to an admin, uh, from the admin process, i.e. certificate of origins, et cetera. And um, and so just working with our supply chain to ensure that they understand what's required has probably been one of the the challenges we've had.
0: Okay, and we'll explore that in a little more detail later on. I want to come to you first, Ollie, to define what we mean by supply chain and which sectors are mostly affected I mean, I go to my local supermarket, a big one, and there are no tomatoes on the shelf at the moment. There hasn't been for three weeks. And That's a supply chain issue. You, you go for it. You tell us what you think.
1: So Brexit's impacted di- lots of different supply chains in lots of different ways. And we have found in the same sector, even, we've had different businesses with totally different problems, even though they're supplying the same goods, because really it's about where your customers are, where your suppliers are, and the borders that you're trying to cross. So uh, a couple of good examples is we would we were expecting big impacts into the automotive industry, food and clothing in particular, because they're the ones that've got the big tariffs as you're moving product between um, the, the the UK and into the into the EU under the WTO terms. However, really every sector of the supply chain has been impacted because of declarations. As Sam's just mentioned, a lot of the paperwork is causing immense problems. Um, and as far as as far as far defining supply chain in terms of what it is, it's everything that moves. So, anything around trucks, it could be uh, warehousing, it can, it can be shipping, it can be e- air freight. It is everything that moves, but in particular for, for Brexit, anything between the EU the UK and back again. Northern Ireland, I'm sure, will come up in this conversation as well because that's a that's also a problem too.
0: We don't seem to hear much in the news about this. I just did a quick Google news search on supply chain issues, shortages of stuff. And the last chat about it was January 2021. It might be that we see pictures of of trucks and lorries waiting at Calais or in Dover to, to do whatever. And we think of supply chain having blockages in it. But it's it's interesting, isn't it? That it's not really been covered that much. Is it because it's too difficult to get into? Do you think, Ollie?
1: I think it's the way it's measured. So the, the the measures I've seen around this are the number of trucks movement, number of truck movements, and that looked reasonably healthy. But if you dig into it a bit more, you'll see that a lot of the returning um, trucks especially through Dover, have been empty. Um, They're far more empty than they've been in the past. So it's been quite difficult to measure. And I'm I'm not sure the public wants to hear about it. I think that there's so much going on around coronavirus. There's so much else going on at the moment that that many people see Brexit as done and dusted and, and, and we're moving on to the next thing. I'd love to see more in the news about it because it's still impacting businesses hugely. I've got clients that can't move stuff into Ireland even now. I've got clients that are trying to move stuff into Europe still and are having problems. And, and a, lot of, a lot of our clients are shipping jobs into warehouses into, in the Netherlands because it, it's a much easier way of uh, moving product into the EU.
0: What are the main barriers to getting supply chain moving then that you're seeing? Paperwork. Paperwork. That's,
1: that's one of the big, yeah, absolutely. Paperwork is one of the big
0: ones. Sam, is that, is that would you concur?
3: Uh yeah, uh, definitely right. I think with some of the bigger businesses we work with in the EU, they're a bit more geared up and ready and prepared. But I think as I said earlier, it's it's the uh, it's a smaller business and we we work with very some sort of, you know, small companies, artisanal um companies, which uh, which are, you know, sometimes two or three people creating some really beautiful things, but um, but they're not necessarily uh geared up for the admin side of it. So we're really having to work with them to ensure that, you know, that particularly certificates of origin are in place um because once it once it comes across the border the certificate of origin isn't there we're obviously having to potentially pay the import duty on those and um uh, so that's been the biggest challenge for us is is actually collaborating with our supply chain and sort of filling some of the skills gaps they might have um just to get hold of their product and um, with some of the things we're finding it's it's not a big market out there for some of the products especially that we're looking to buy or import as part of our product. And um, where there is where sort of limited supply, obviously we have to work with who we know. So um, so, it's, so it's been a challenge and so we've had to really work with our supply chain, supply chain over the last few months just to make sure we've really nailed that paperwork side of it.
0: And Isabel, with British Vault having a blank page in terms of supply chain in front of it, that's quite a nice position to be in. But just flesh out for us the general automotive landscape in terms of supply chain, where the pinch points are, what what we can think about in terms of that industry particularly.
2: I think really for the automotive industry, the biggest concern was the tariffs. Um, You know, if we didn't have this trade and cooperation agreement with the European Union, you know, many car parts uh, were were transiting across from the European Union to the UK and back again multi, multiple times before they actually made it into a vehicle. And that was for vehicles made not only in the UK, but also, you know, supplying components out to vehicles in, in, in Europe. So, I can see that the paperwork and logistics challenges are going to be having an impact, but it's very difficult to pull out the detail from that because you're in a distorted logistics scenario at the moment because of the you know coronavirus restrictions that are that are in place around the world. So I think it's very very difficult to make a judgment call on you know how much impact there is in the automotive industry. Although undoubtedly there has been one. I think that one thing that's that's going to change moving forwards is this reliance on these long and very fragile supply chains. I think the coronavirus crisis has really identified that for high volume manufacturing these long su- supply chains are completely unsustainable. And we need to think about making components much more locally. And that's very, very true of the battery industry. And it's one of the um, key strategies of the European Union and also for the United Kingdom is to capture that additional value rather than you know, having that value captured in other countries in, in, in the Far East. We can give more people jobs if we do this locally.
0: Ollie tell us about how delays in supply chains are affecting SMEs. So we know the blockages are perhaps paperwork and uh, other issues and educating suppliers. Um, but what about the the SMEs who are affected? How, how is that happening? So
1: so earlier I talked a bit about, um, mentioned sort of compliance and optimization. And I think a lot of SMEs are struggling to get to that compliance piece in particular. I mean, some good examples that we're seeing around sort of impact. We're seeing products that can't be moved in and out of, of, of Ireland. We're also seeing people taking margin reductions too. The other thing that's probably worth mentioning, just building on on Isabel's points in the automotive industry and shortening on supply chains, one of the things we're expecting to see and starting to see already is the accumulation of activities into one particular area. So, if you take parts of a mini, they go back and forth across the channel many times before it becomes a mini if you've got a part which doesn't quite reach that um, maximum non-originating material uh, value, it, the, the origin of those parts can remain maybe Chinese or, or may someone from outside the EU until you hit that um, ma- uh, that uh, originating part value in one hit. So, that means if you've got something that's broken up into maybe four or five activities, and they add in 10 20% value on each time, and the, but the original part came from China, it continues to be a Chinese part all the way through. So we're expecting to see more of, and we're, we're hearing about it already. A lot of those activities grouped up together to hit that 50% mark to allow the origin to change and, and allow that to become an EU or UK origin product. So when it goes into the car, it's more likely to be tariff-free in the future.
0: For bigger businesses who can afford consultants like yourself, perhaps, or perhaps have in-house supply chain dedicated brains on it. That's great, isn't it? But for SMEs, you know, the backbone of the British economy, 96, 97, 98% of business is small and medium-sized. How on earth are they wrapping their heads around all of this uh, as an issue and and getting through it? Is there any sort of top tip that you might have, Sam, about borders, delays, for example, that affect your business? I mean, what are you doing to not go mad
3: (laughs) through all of this? I'm not sure what we're doing about not going mad, but um, we're certainly trying to we're trying to we're trying to tackle uh, everything that comes. And I think we're you know, we've you know, we've really tried to prepare ourselves as best as possible with the information that became available. And um, I think probably. One of the things we were, you know, we the second we knew that Brexit was happening, to ensure business continuity for us, we really started digging into what it might mean, uh, should we be on World Trade Organisation terms, or if we do get some sort of deal, and what does that look like? And we did lots of scenario planning around worst case and best case. And um, the issue we found, though, was that it took, it was so late in the day to the point where uh, we actually knew what we would be doing. Um, although we did start getting a general direction, sort of probably around summer last year, Year. we you know we, we were still waiting for the final nod on is it going to be world trade is it going to be is it going to be a free trade agreement what does that free trade agreement look like we had to be careful with you know this was one of those things where you could you could have spent tens of thousands on advice and whether or not that advice was needed or not would have would have depended on what the outcome was as it seems so we had to really tread carefully and and make sure we weren't blowing our budgets with regards to preparing um, so it was one of those we had to you know like a lot of small businesses have to be very careful. There was, you know, there was a lot of talk about a lot of information being readily available, and we were—and to be fair, we were getting probably at least a letter and an email, uh, probably once a month from HMRC, sort of saying prepare for Brexit, make sure you've got an EORI number, all these sort of things, which thanks thankfully, we already have. But there just seems to be so much coming out in a wash now, while we're actually we're actually trading, we're actually moving goods, we're actually filling in these bits of paper, and um, now we're actually doing this. We're still there's still some, although we felt we were very well prepared, there's still some hurdles to get over, and um, and. We we haven't experienced delays at the border. The border's been quite smooth. It's been the it's been the logistics side of it, as in backwards and forwards with paperwork. It was meant to get on the lorry today. It hasn't done because we haven't got the right form. We need to fill out this form or we need to get this form right. Um, so that's where we've experienced the delays, although only a day or two. Um, I know there's some industries out there who would be very sensitive to a day or two. Luckily, our goods aren't perishable. But that's where we've really, that's what we've been sort of dancing around at the moment is, let's actually do it. Let's actually get on with it. And, you know, we need, to, we need to see what comes out in the wash as we go through it.
0: And although your goods aren't perishable, I assume you work within projects and have deadlines exactly. and need to yeah. meet certain things at certain times uh, in order to get your work surfaces in, for example. Can you put a little bit more flesh on the bones and describe, you know, what types of things might cause delays? And therefore, you know, give us an example if you could. That would be really good, Sam.
3: Obviously, you know everyone read everything in the news about brexit, and it was you know talk of you know weeks' delay at the border or you know days um so we we kind of, again we went we did some scenario planning around what does what does it really mean if something's held up at the border for a week so what we decided to do um quite early on was that you know a lot of our project programs. Uh, because of the bespoke and luxury nature of our product, um, this isn't this isn't bought off a shelf and installed next week. You know, it, it goes it goes through weeks and weeks and weeks of craftsmanship, and so we had time to prepare. And uh, so what we started doing was we started communicating quite early on with our uh, with our clients uh, about programs and delivery programs, and we were we were building in contingency into our programs that we were sharing with our clients just in case. There were delays of a border or we weren't sure or there was custom problems or paperwork problems. So we we were managing our clients' expectations very early. And uh, we were also making sure we were covering ourselves as a business to deliver on what we said we could deliver.
0: Did you educate, communicate interior designers, the craftsmen, the tradesmen to sort of educate them on what might happen if and how willing were they to hear you? On those points, so I mean, I can't imagine it being too palatable.
3: It was certainly a question that was asked a lot throughout uh, tender phases, and, and certainly in the early f- stages of uh, Brexit. Um, but most of the conversation, interestingly enough, were around costs for clients. So they were there was a lot of there was a lot of questions around: Is it going to cost us more? Is there a cost impact? Are, are, are there other import duties? So some those questions we were actually able to answer quite quickly because we knew we knew the scenarios with regards to import duties with world trade organization terms or free trade agreement etc um with regards to the timelines where like where we've where we've got quite long programs, it wasn't too difficult to talk to people about adding a week in, which is essentially what we were doing, um, just, to, just to give ourselves some contingency planning. And uh, when, people, when you're talking about craftsmanship, and, and this is probably, it was probably one of the easier conversations we had when you're talking about craftsmanship and people are waiting a long time to get their product from us. You know, waiting an extra week wasn't the end of the world, but there was a lot of focus around cost, which I'm sure was probably, for some businesses out there, I'm sure that was actually quite uncomfortable. I know there's some big tariffs out there and if you're um umming and ah ahhing around what tariffs are going to be it's probably quite hard to communicate with your clients and have those kind of discussions with any surety.
0: So Ollie tell us about those delays in supply chains and how they're affecting SMEs. Any examples?
3: Yeah there's there's lots of examples
1: with people we've worked across. We've got all sorts of things. So, so a great example is probably an education resources business we've been working with, um, trying to help them move product around. They, they supply product, product to schools across Europe, and those schools want products at the drop of a hat, and they don't want to pay any postage packaging delivery type costs. Some of their um, products uh, come under the category of toys. In the tariffs, and other times they come under educational goods. There's ambiguity in the, in identifying exactly what the product is. And this particular company was sending products through through a Spanish port, and they were sending products through a French port. And the Spanish port said, "No, no, no, these are toys." And the French port went, "No, these are educational goods." So they're having all sorts of problems in between all of the different ports to identify exactly what their product is. And the only way to do that is to really go to um, HMRC and and, and try and get something to say that this is exactly what it is. However, you've then got to be able to try and communicate that to multiple different um, ports. Um, They're also having trouble with getting getting product across. Sam's talked about paperwork. I've mentioned paperwork. We've talked about VAT as well. They all have costs on top. And, And in reality, the minimum order quantity for many of these businesses is going to go right the way up. And it's going to be difficult to buy products from from the UK unless you want to spend a, a lot more money.
0: Fascinating, isn't it? Um, and also the word of HMRC in, in the UK is is lasting and that's the final word. But to a Spanish poor, meh, who cares? You know what they say, what we say is more important. So I can imagine there's a lot of toing and froing. And that is a cost to business, isn't it, ultimately?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and all of these things add I'm calling non productive jobs, but they are jobs which are helping product move through that weren't there previously. So we've added lots of these, these these roles into businesses, but there aren't really the skills. You know, we've we've continued to ship product outside of the EU for many, many years, and there are very few people that actually are skilled in customs and and, and, and know how to move product around. And suddenly we need lots of them. And so lots of people are, are asking for our help or local enterprise networks and government um, government help as well to try and move these products around. Freight forwarders, all these people are trying to do a job as well. They're, they're all trying to help. But again, they haven't got enough trained people. I mean, it probably is worth saying there is money to be had from government at the moment. You can get £2,000 from the gov.uk website to help small businesses. Um, And and that's in the form of grants. Local enterprise networks are doing a huge amount of work to help educate people as well. So, there is help out there.
0: Isabel, it sounds like you've got a blank sheet for British Vault in terms of developing supply chain. What's your approach going to be? What's your strategy?
2: Well, I think these long, fragile supply chains that we talked about previously um, also hide another problem. I think that we have an issue with exporting our carbon content problems. Um, It's quite easy just to think, oh, let's go and get this done in the Far East because it's low cost. But then you go and look at the emissions that are resulting from those operations over there and you start to wonder about the wisdom of of, of the cost effectiveness if you start to, to factor in the, the carbon content of those processes. Um, so, so we really do have an opportunity not only to bring back manufacturing processes to, to Europe and, and, and to the European Union. Don't forget the trade and cooperation agreement means that we can we can buy stuff from the European Union and still be rules of origin compliant. But it also gives us an opportunity to to clean up some of the manufacturing processes. Quite simply, some of the manufacturing processes you see in China, you would never get permitted in the European Union um, because they're too dirty. So I think we have in front of us a significant opportunity to start to change things for the better not not just from a distance perspective, but also from you know from a GDP benefit, uh, employment benefit, but also a carbon content benefit. Um, so that's how we're looking at it from a blank sheet of paper perspective. How do we reimagine these processes? How do we repatriate these processes to Europe? And how do we make them cost competitive with what's gone on before?
0: Ollie, what behaviours are SMEs displaying in terms of their choices of supplier or how they supply organisations and companies with their goods. Is anyone, you know, jumping to change things dramatically?
1: Yeah, that some are, some are and some aren't. So, so some have taken some immediate action, some haven't, and it really depends on the business. They're so different from, from um, business to business. One of the things that we've seen a lot of work around is margins, so looking at customers, looking at products, looking at different margins for each of those, and then being able to say, right, which ones actually make me money here? Which ones make me money after Brexit as well? And then and then making those decisions to which ones you want to serve in the future. We've seen lots of businesses that have just said, actually, I'm not doing any more in Europe. I'm going to take the hit on my revenue. It used to be it used to be quite profitable, but it's not anymore. So I'm not. I'm just going to stop doing it. It's just too much of a problem. I, we then see others that have said actually, we're just going to take the margin here. We need the contribution towards the overheads so or we need we need the uh, economies of scale that some of that brings. And and it's driving some behaviours around uh, trying to make decisions on, on a margin basis, primarily from what we've seen.
0: Sam, in the kitchen business, the high, high, high end of the kitchen business, is margin something that you have looked at and, and made sure you're okay on?
3: Yeah, so obviously... Margins key to any business and we're no different and um you know for us to keep innovating in the kitchen industry and to keep keep attracting the talent which produces our uh, you know our beautiful designs and our beautiful kitchens you know we need to ensure that there's a sustainable margin in our business and um and certainly brexit was a potential um threat to that margin either by us taking a margin hit as ollie uh, mentioned or or our clients, the cost increasing to our clients, so it's, it's something we did look at. Now we're probably one of the luckier industries with regards to margin hit because where we're a a low volume, high value sort of importing business, the admin costs are actually. Uh, almost, you know, almost negligible for us, which is which is which is good for us. Um, so we've and also our, our products aren't uh, do not attract duty. So, um, but I know there are some business out there who the story is very different, and I'm sure is causing a lot of headaches out there.
0: Ollie, is that something that you're seeing? High volume businesses affected, and what can they do about it? What what can any business do about this?
3: High volume
1: businesses, particularly if they're business to customer are incredibly affected, And be honest, there's very little they can do to, to reduce the administration costs per package, apart from, sadly, set up something in the EU and ship and consolidate all of their shipments together, ship them across to the EU, and then send them out individually. Uh, moving some of that activity into Europe is, is, has, been, has, has certainly been, has been quite popular. The other thing you can do is around bonded warehousing or inward processing relief too. So there are opportunities to bring product into the UK, don't land the product, and then send it back out into Europe you, you get around the tariffs and you get around some of the VAT issues that way, but it doesn't solve all your problems.
0: Can I ask how you don't land a product?
1: Yes. So, it's, it's all about the
0: paperwork. So,
1: it's, you bring the product into the UK, on a on maybe in a container. You put it into a warehouse, but the warehouse, in effect, has got a big ring around it that, that you can track all of your products and you know exactly where everything is. So, when you send it back out again, it goes straight out of the UK and you can demonstrate that... That this particular item has come in, and this the exact same item has gone straight out of the UK as well.
0: The box hasn't even been
1: opened. The box hasn't been opened. Exactly, exactly that. And so you then you then you've got opportunities not to pay not to pay the tariffs, but you still have a cost you've got to pay. And the actual cost of bonding a warehouse is not cheap either. Um, Freeports is like a big bonded warehouse in many ways, and that's an opportunity for many businesses.
0: There are so many levers and buttons and things moving, uh, ironically in a supply chain conversation, <laughs> um, to for businesses to get their heads around. How long will it take for smaller businesses to settle down, to bed in with all of the issues to do with supply chain and protect themselves from any future changes that come along? Um, Ollie, I'll start with you on that. Just a quick a quick guide for businesses: What number one thing can they get stuck into?
1: One is if you're doing B two C, think about the VAT one stop shop. It allows you can consolidate all your VAT payments and then um, it makes it much simpler when supplying into into Europe. So that's one. The others around rules of origin, which is making sure you know what your rules of origin your, your origin of all your products are, because you will, if if you got it wrong you might end up getting backdated taxes
2: well i think it's going to drive a lot of smaller and independent suppliers to to enter into the market to supply some of the bigger companies like british World, for example so whereby we we may be in, in the past tempted to buy a lower cost product and import it because we we, we could and we may be relying on lo- more you know more on local engineering firms to to provide those goods and services into the
3: business I think for us you know I think if I was talking to any other business owner I would you know I'd, I'd say that you know there's been some very good points both from um, Isabel and oliver uh, the thing I would add is 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 approach your supply chain collaboratively um it's it's not an easy conversation. Some of these things for 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 us or for them, uh, but if you're working together to find the solution, I found that that's the best way to get the results needed and to and to get buy-in from your supply chain because. Ultimately, they want to keep selling to you, and you want to keep buying from them. So, finding a way of making that easier between the two of you is only for me is only the best way to find a solution. And you know, I guess for me, I get there's been a lot of talk about import duties and 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 tariffs and VAT etc. But I think probably the one thing like we are other small businesses out there are are sort of pleased to see is um, the move in exchange rate. For the last three or four years, you know, we've been hovering around the 110 mark to the pound against euro and um, it's moving back up towards that 120 mark where it was before Brexit and you know which which means we're, we're able to be a bit more competitive again I'm sure that'll be a, a welcome positive step from the outcome of Brexit for most businesses who rely on goods coming from the EU.
0: Many, many more conversations to be had, I'm sure. Thank you all so much for your input on this. It is a fascinating subject. And uh, I'd like to say thank you to Ollie Bridge from Grant Thornton, Isabel Sheldon at British Vault, and Sam Walker of the Fabulous Kitchen and Other Things uh, makers at Lansering. You've been listening to the Brexit Ready podcast for the Hertfordshire Growth Hub, powered by Hertfordshire Local Enterprise Partnership. If any of the issues raised in our discussion today have got you thinking about what you might need to do next, the Growth Hub can help. Growth account managers help you work through the issues that might affect your business and help you to navigate the support available. They can signpost you to specialist support, including live and on-demand webinars and videos, as well as help you to access a host of fully funded support programs. Visit heartsgrowthhub.com and register for free today. And don't forget to subscribe to the Brexit Ready podcast on your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could leave a review. It just makes the podcast easier to find for others. Brexit Ready is a Fresh Air production. I'm Penny Haslam. Thanks for listening.